0: It is Wednesday, June 15th, 2022, and it's Justin Shackle welcoming you all to episode 39 of Towing the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. It's a pitching podcast, and that's what we talk about every week here with the five-time World Series champion, the Cy Young Award winner, David Cohn, the research wizard, James Smythe, and myself. And guys, there are a handful of teams that have racked up a lot of wins lately, and some that have racked up. A lot of losses over the last couple of weeks, we are going to look at the pitching for some of those teams this week and ultimately try to figure out if their recent streaks even matter here as we approach the 60 65 game mark in the MLB season here in 2022. David, you were out in L.A. over the weekend for Sunday Night Baseball. Angels and Mets, interesting interleague matchup, and two teams kind of going in complete opposite directions here. How'd the West Coast treat you, my friend?
1: Everything was great until I hit the red-eye back home. <laughs> I just got thrown for a loop, man. It's been a while since I did a red-eye fight. So, yeah, I got, some, uh, I got some work to do to catch up here. But nonetheless... I love the West coast, uh, love the lifestyle, you know, I'm worried about the angels and their bullpen, but, you know, staying on the West coast to me, watch out for the Padres. How about the San Diego Padres As we we tape this episode are tied with the Dodgers in first place and Dodgers have their own issues. Walker Bueller, who knows what's going to happen with him and his elbow injury. So yeah, what the Padres are for real. They need a bat. They need some offense. Maybe Fernando Tatis Jr. coming back will give them the lift they need. When and if he comes back, I think he will come back. It's just a matter of when. So, yeah, watch out for the Padres. I'm on the Padres train this morning.
0: Yeah, with that, hey, let's, <clears throat> let's get right into the opener here because the Padres, as it stands, when we're recording this, we're recording on Tuesday, June 14th. Padres and Dodgers, they are tied atop the NL West. San Diego actually has one – more win than the dodgers right now la has lost three in a row six of ten and they are about to start a mini two-game freeway series with the angels we're going to touch on the halos in a little bit but when you take a look at this nl west what jumps out at you about the padres being able to catch up with the dodgers here and potentially usurp them atop the division
1: well, it starts in their rotation. They have a fantastic uh, starting rotation, uh, which to me has really kept them afloat with Fernando Tatis Jr. Injured, obviously the first part of the year, their offense other than Matty Machado who's having an MVP caliber season. Uh, he's kind of carried them offensively, but the starting pitching keeps you in it, keeps you in every game and you look at them top to bottom, you Darvish, Joe Musgrove. I mean, you might have a better season than Joe Musgrove. I mean, he's just filthy. That was some of the best breaking stuff in, in the game. Uh, Sean Manaya, Mackenzie Gore. We're going to talk about him a little later on in this episode. He is for real. What a great start to his young career he's had. So yes, the the Padres, because of their pitching and because the fact that maybe some of their players have have underproduced, Um, former Yankee Luke Voigt, maybe starting to swing the bat a little better recently. He's got six homers, but his numbers have come up to pretty close to league average. He really needs to give them a boost on the power side. That's where they're really lacking. It's a it's a tough park to hit home runs in out in San Diego, but they, they need some pop. Luke Voigt is it for now until Fernando Tatis Jr. comes back. And, of course, as I said before, Manny Machado is a great player and having an MVP-style season.
2: Musgrove, 1.50 ERA, leading the major leagues right now. And what's been really impressive, too, with the Padres is they're winning on the road, 21-11 and 11 away from Petco Park. That's the best mark in the national league and the second best mark in the majors behind the Yankees. You
0: know, a lot of people talk about the contract decision with a guy like Aaron judge and the type of season that he's having guys on the pitching side, Joe Musgrove is set to be a free agent at the end of this season. All he's done at this point is lead all baseball with a one and a half ERA, but he's setting himself up nicely for the bag here in the uh, off season.
1: Yeah, he really is. You know, I I met him uh, earlier this year. We did a game on the West Coast, of Padres and Sunday Night Baseball. He's huge. He's a large human being and he gets tremendous leverage and angles on his breaking stuff. It seems like it rains out of the sky. You know, you talk about uh, hitters, the bringer of rain, Josh Donaldson, you know, home runs, you know, moonshots. So he's he's a bringer of rain with his breaking ball from his angle over the top and straight down the kind of. uh, leverage he gets on on the spin on his breaking stuff, it's really hard to pick up. He's got built-in deception because of how large he is, how big he is, his release point, and the spin he gets on his breaking stuff really is unique in my mind.
2: Musgrove, a 2012 Bluefield Blue Jay in rookie ball in the Appalachian League back when I was doing broadcasting down there. He was a guy that when you saw him come through, you're like, he's not going to be here for very long. And he wasn't. He He was off to Vancouver in short season A ball and moving up the ladder soon enough.
0: How long was he there, James? Um Do you remember? I mean, you don't have to be exact. I know that's your game. That's two your games MO, but... that season. Oh, I okay.
2: knew it was not long, <laughs> but I did not, I don't remember it being that short of a stay, but he was very impressive along with Daniel Norris on that staff. Nice.
1: I'd love to go back in the Wayback Machine and find James Schmyth and hear a few of his his calls back then. <laughs> I don't know if they're out there. If they're out there anywhere, please send them my way. I gotta I gotta hear James Smythe, you know, behind the mic.
0: <laughs> they're out there in the clouds somewhere for sure. Uh, all right, guys, there's been a lot of talks about several teams going on good streaks, bad streaks, teams even with, with medium streaks, I guess, if, if you want to call it. But there are some clubs with with some serious damage or some serious headway that have been made over the last week or so. So we're going to run through some of these teams. But before we talk about streakers I kind of wanted to put a bow on the topic that was at the top for many people around the league, and that was what happened with the White Sox and the Dodgers last week. Tony La Russa getting a lot of heat for how he walked Trey Turner on a one-two count, and then kind of how he doubled down on it. You you know the summary there. White Sox-Dodgers, sixth inning. Chicago is down two runs. La Russa decides to intentionally walk Trey Turner despite the pitcher Bennett Sousa being ahead in the count one and two. He's intentionally walked to face Max Muncy, who is coming off the injured list. He hasn't been hitting like Max Muncy from the past, but then he hits a three-run homer, and it doesn't look all that well for Larusa and the White Sox. Okay, we know this story by now, but not too many people are talking about the pitcher here, Bennett Souza. Let's talk about poor Bennett here, David. What does a move like that from your manager make you think if you're the one pitching on the mound?
1: You know, this wouldn't be as big a story if he had not given up the three-run home run to, to Max Muncie. obviously. That makes it a big story, just the bang-bang nature of it. We, we would have talked about it and said, what an unusual move. I mean, you, you, I don't know. Historically, James could probably find this somewhere somehow. You'd have to dig deep on a research if that. How many times that's been done before on a one-two count? But you understand there's a wild pitch thrown, you know, from Larusa's standpoint, just to prosecute both sides of this. Okay, Tony says... Hey there's a wild pitch, first base opened up, Trey Turner's really good. Maybe uh you know, individually he's really burned burned him before so he's a little fearful of Trey Turner even on a 1-2 count. He liked the lefty lefty matchup. Yeah, yeah, okay, I could see that uh, but the fact that Tony was so indignant in his press conference afterwards like how could you question me on that it was an easy move to me that that spells trouble. It, it was there's sort of a uh, you know, the beat writers have a job to do. And after a game, you know, these guys live the same life as the players. They follow, they travel on the road. They don't make as much money, obviously. They stay in cheaper hotels, but they live the life, the same life. They deserve respect. And to be so indignant when a, a reporter is just trying to do his job, of course he has to ask that question. Of course you, you just walked a guy on a one-two count. That's the story of the day. The next hitter hit a three-run homer. You have to be prepared for that question that bothered me more than anything. You know, you, I have a, you know, I, I think you have to respect these guys when they're doing their job and they have less access than ever before coming through the COVID era, these beat writers, these guys, these, these men and women that cover the baseball, uh, the, the, the the teams on, on, on a day in and day out basis. I don't like that. I don't like the treatment of those, those people. I, I, I think they deserve respect. Uh, that bothered me more than anything. Then the decision-making or the nuts and bolts are peeling back the layers of whether that was a good move or not, or how ironic that move turned out because the three run home run was given up afterwards. But to me, it was the, the treatment of, of, of the question itself that bothered me more than anything.
2: The reaction made it look even worse, but going back just to the decision itself, it is a head scratcher. Platoon splits. They matter of course, but once you get two strikes on a guy, I don't care who it is. And then the numbers bear it out. Uh, as far as historically speaking, uh, Ben Clemens of Fangraphs, thankfully, did uh did a piece on this the other day at, in the aftermath of the of the intentional walk and he found two other times since 2014 where there was an intentional walk with two strikes and they were both after a stolen base or a wild pitch and they both backfired because in 2021 in April 2021 Rockies walked Corey Seager on a one two count after Gavin Lux stole second Chris Taylor hits an RBI double. Then uh, two weeks later, the Twins walked Mike Trout on a one-two count after a wild pitch, and then Justin Upton hit a grand slam right after that. So none of these are really working.
0: Yeah, Tony La I feel historically, whenever he does get questioned by reporters for any type of mood, he kind of does throw it back with his answer in the form of a question. So I don't think that that's anything new i mean at this point it's come it, it, is it right no it, it probably shouldn't have to happen that way but it, i don't think it's anything that we shouldn't have come to expect at this point with tony la Russa, even here in his later years but from the perspective of human nature as a pitcher you know if you are on that white Sox pitching staff david not even if you're bennett susie because i agree with you hey you should you know you you could have easily made it look like a the right move or you could have acquitted yourself by not giving up the three-run homer to Max Muncie, But if you are a fellow pitcher on that staff, you're watching what happens, you're probably thinking the same thing, but it can't be 100% all in that direction, right? It's still a one-two count.
1: Yeah, I think that's your, that was your original question that I kind of dodged and didn't answer, Shaq, so you're right. Thanks for bringing it back. But confidence-wise, yes, emotionally on the mound, it's a, it's a, it matters. If, if a manager shows confidence in a young pitcher, it matters. And conversely, if he doesn't, and, you know, ordering your young pitcher to walk a guy with a one, two count, even if it is Trey Turner. Yeah. That does not breed confidence. So, you know, you still have to follow orders. You still have to do what you're told to do. It's Tony La He's a hall of fame manager. He's got a great track record that speaks for itself, but nonetheless, it's a great point Shaq in terms of, are you breeding confidence on your staff? Are you showing them that you believe in them? Does that have a residual effect? Guys in the bullpen watching this, you know, yeah, we know it's easy to second guess because the home run was given up afterwards, the three-run shot. But, yeah, there, there is something to be said for how you build a pitching staff, showing confidence in them. It's the hard part to quantify, right, the emotional part, the human element side of the game and the psychological part of the game. And whether you're building that side or you're breaking that side down, yeah, I know it's you're trying to win a ball game. You're trying to make a move if you're a manager, but maybe, maybe uh, there is something to be said for, hey, uh, you, you're not helping these guys out psychologically. You're not building them up. And so, yes, it's a valid point. Uh, only they can answer that, how they feel inside that clubhouse and internally how that impacted them.
0: You know, the White Sox have lost three out of the last four series. Uh, with the time of this recording, they are three games under 500. They are in a series with the Tigers here. But as far as the pitching goes, they have the, the fifth highest whip in the majors. They're tied with the Reds for the most walks allowed in the majors. Uh, not good, especially for someone's World Series pick around here. Yes, it was me. Uh, preseason World Series pick, the Chicago White Sox. That's not looking too good at this moment here in mid-June. Okay, there are some teams that are currently on a streak or they just had one wrapped up. And let's start with the team with the longest active winning streak at the moment, the Atlanta Braves. They have won 12 in a row, three runs or fewer, allowed in eight of those 12 wins. So my question is, why should we be believing in this team's recent run as it pertains to catching the Mets in the NLEs? It's one thing about a playoff spot. But as far as the division goes, is this enough to instill all the belief for another division title?
1: You know, normally I would say yes, based on recent history and what they did last year in the second half of the season. And Ronald Acuna Jr. heating up and really looking like he's going to continue to get better and better uh, post-surgery and that ACL injury he had. But as we speak today, Ozzy Albies Jr. is out for a while as he has a fracture or a broken foot uh, broken bone in his foot. Uh, who knows how long that's going to take. Uh, he's a big, big part of that clubhouse. He's a leader. He's a talker. He's, he's the soup spoon in that clubhouse, so to speak. So yeah, that's a big blow for them in my mind, just from a leadership standpoint. And he's the guy that talks to, uh, to Ronald Acuna Jr. Ronald Acuna Jr. Is an interesting cat, right? I mean, he's emotional, and the bat flipper, the guy who really plays with his heart on his sleeve. But Ozzie Albee is the one who gets to him. He's the one who kind of is the one who can, he can talk to him, and he's out. And that's a big blow to me. So we'll see how that plays out. But you have a broken bone in your foot. That could be two months, maybe longer. Who knows? You, know, that, you just don't know until that thing heals. Well, you mentioned the, uh, the winning streak, 268 ERA
2: during these last 12 games and at least they've cut the cut the deficit in half they went from 10 and a half games out to 5 games out in about 2 weeks but i think those last 5 games are going to be the toughest ones to make up the mets are humming along even though they treaded water with a 5 and 5 west coast trip they've at least gotten themselves back to somewhat equal footing only 5 games back
0: And the Mets are only getting closer to adding Scherzer and DeGrom back into the rotation as well. But yeah, Albies, the the foot fracture happening on Monday in D.C. against the Nationals, man, that's tough. I mean, all around, it it restricts your mobility completely, especially a position like second base. You're shuffling back and forth laterally. That's really tough. So it's ironic if we probably – Recorded this podcast on Monday morning instead of you know Tuesday afternoon like yeah. we are. Maybe the dancer is different, right? But yes. uh, that that's the essence of baseball here. The essence of one sixty two. Another team in the NL East, the Phillies. They had won nine in a row. They've won ten of eleven for them. Three runs or fewer in seven of those ten victories. Do they have enough pitching to be viewed as legit playoff contenders?
1: It's a valid point. I mean, Nola and Wheeler and the rotation when they're right, are as good as any two right-handers. I mean, they're great. One, two punch. Uh, but to me, it's all down to the bullpen. You know, do they have enough? Um, you know, Sarah Anthony Dominguez is having a great year. He's back. He's really got a power arm. He's probably their best power arm down there in the bullpen. Um, Corey Canabel's kind of been up and down as their closer this year. His, His number, his curveball has been inconsistent this year. His strikeout numbers are down. So, yeah, I worry about the Philly bullpen. They need some help in the bullpen. I would expect them to be active around the trade deadline, along with everybody else looking for for bullpen help. So that's the question on the pitching side, really, as you narrow it down. It's really in the bullpen for Philly, and their offense speaks for itself. I mean, they're going to bang. They're going to hit a bunch of homers, and they're heating up offensively, Then they're going to be in it. They have a good shot to make the playoffs, but as far as uh, how far they go, it's really down to their bullpen. Cutting it to
2: three and a half in the wild card race, but they'd have to jump over teams like the Braves and even the Brewers or the Cardinals, whoever doesn't win the central there. Like Coney said, the bullpen is a question mark. What I will give them though, is that the bar for them to clear pitching wise is going to be lower because of their offense. If you have Schwarber, Hoskins, Harper, Castellanos, Real Muto, that's about as good of a one through five as you're going to find in the game. And that lineup is really uh, coalesced now under Rob Thompson, a consistent leadoff hitter in Schwarber and on down the line. So at least they might uh, not have to be as great as some other teams might have to be in order to keep their pitching in line.
0: It feels like there have been pieces that are now consistently being plugged into that Philly lineup, day in and day out. And you mentioned Wheeler and Nola. Hey, though, you know, if you have those two every five days, the lineup could potentially bandaid a a lot of the other shortcomings in that rotation. We'll see Zach Wheeler, by the way, uh, five and oh, 1.42 ERA over his last eight starts. The Milwaukee Brewers guys, let's move on to them. They had lost eight straight as of last week. They've now lost 10 of 12 and This was the team that a lot of people said had the best pitching staff and especially their starting rotation in the majors before the season, they had the names you had Corbin Burns, obviously at the front of that rotation, but this rotation has had some blow up starts as we call them. What is the feeling like David in the clubhouse when as a team, you're going through it, right? There's a big rut going on, but. It's also happening when the ace, like Corbin Burns, is struggling here. Over his last two spart- starts, he's been pretty spotty.
1: Great points. You know, I, I still go down to the overall depth of the rotation was the strength. You know, Corbin Burns is great, but uh, when you lose Brandon Woodruff and Freddie Peralta, you know, that, those are two really good starters. It, it was like Milwaukee had a, a different number one starter every night they went out there, a potential number one. It's almost like they could take turns. You know, that was the, uh, the the quality and the depth of their rotation. That's no longer there. And when you are starting rotation and you have uh, some injury issues and then maybe a little bit of a fall off, you point your eyes back to the offense. It's like, give us a break. Come on, help us out here a little bit. And they're not getting any help from their offense. And that's a big problem when you think about they only have – four players in their lineup that are above league average, according to OPS plus and Omar Navaya is the catcher. Ironically, maybe you didn't know that he's probably leading their team in terms of OPS plus Rowdy to What a great pickup he is. He's their best offensive player. That's a problem. You know, when you think about Christian Yelich, who's right at league average on OPS plus that, that's not getting it done. You got to be better than that. They picked up Hunter Renfro. He's a little bit above the league average at one Oh seven, 7% above league average on OPS plus. So that's just not enough. You got to score some runs. You have to, you know, the old uh, one hand washes the other. You have to protect your starting rotation and give them some help and score some runs here and there. Take some, give them some breathing room. And that that's a problem in Milwaukee right now. To me, they need another bat. They've had some, you know, when you look at the bottom too, they really had some face plants. Uh, Lorenzo Kane really has face planted in his, his age 36 season. Uh, you know that it, it, it's, it's they need some help. Somebody's got to step up. That's there, um, but yeah, you know, maybe maybe the, the trade deadline is a, is another bat to find for for the Milwaukee Brewers as potentially Woodruff and Peralta come back and solidify their rotation once again. To me, it just squarely goes right to their offensive production. That's true, and it's probably just a blip
2: for Corbin Burns. You know, it happens during the course of a season, right, Coney? A couple, you know, a couple of. Uh, not so great starts, but a chance for him to turn things around is going to be a good test. On Wednesday, Burns facing the Mets at City Field. And then after that, it's a, it's a good three-start test because you have the Mets at City Field, then back home against the Cardinals. That should be a big series as they're going neck and neck in the, atop the NL Central. And then after that, the, the third start looks like it'll be at home against the Blue Jays. So uh, a tough draw for Corbin Burns as he tries to get on track.
0: It, the Brewers are at City Field this week against the Mets, after Burns, you have some of the guys that I guess were looked at to pick up the load with Woodruff and Peralta out. Aaron Ashby, Eric Lauer, Ashby overall pretty good in 13 games, 3.91 ERA, 62 strikeouts in 50 and two thirds, but he's given up uh, a lot of a lot of uh, passes to the bases, One four-four WHIP. But that one in five record stands out, based on what you were talking about, David, with the lack of run support from the offense, and and this is a team that needs some help right now, needs some run support because the arms just aren't the same. And I think obviously Corbin Burns is going to be fine moving along, but they they still have some strikeout pitchers. You mentioned Ashby, you mentioned Lauer, Burns obviously there, but it hasn't been exactly the same as it was when guys like Woodruff and and Peralta are healthy. So they need to buy their time and figure something out before those two get back into the rotation. The LA Angels. A lot of people have been talking about them, and they would probably prefer not to be talked about at this moment because they've lost 16 of 18 heading into this freeway series with the Dodgers. Really simple, guys. How close are the Angels from being cooked here?
1: Oh, yeah. Once again, I, you know, it's nothing derails any momentum a team can get, especially offensively, is when you give up leads late in the game. That's just demoralizing. That's what's happened out there. And, when you, want, you know, I, I'm going to bang the drum again on the bullpen, but it really is. Rasiel Iglesias has kind of fallen off a bit this year. He's got a 4.64 ERA as we speak right now. He's given a five home runs, big home runs late in games, 24 games he's pitched. Uh, and then you, you look at the overall depth, it's uh, wow. I mean, they signed Aaron Loop off of a historic season he had last year with the Mets, and they, it just hasn't been as good this year. He's kind of been snake bit. Maybe the Babbitt gods have hurt them a little bit, and maybe he's due to be a little bit better in the second half. But they've got a young kid, the Glitch, Jimmy Hergett. Uh, I mean, he's fun to watch. He really does look like a glitch. His arm like like, you know, what happened to the video there? They, by the time he releases the ball, there's a funny little arm action there. Uh, Ryan Tapera. Good veteran pitcher, but, you know, middle of the road so far in his performance. So when you look at the Angels, you, you think about Mike Trout, you think about Shohei Otani. The rotation's been decent, really, Is Patrick Sandoval, we mentioned earlier in earlier episodes, is really good. Good change-up slider combination. Michael Lorenzen's been good, too. So, uh, you know, Otani is Otani on the mound when he pitches. He can dominate at any time. So, yeah, the, the rotation's okay. The rotation's got a chance to hold you in there. But the bullpen, it's got to be the bullpen. Iglesias has been good in the past. He needs to reestablish himself, but I'm not sure if they have enough. They need some help down there, and there'll be another team that'll be looking for help at the trade deadline coming up. As soon as we get past the amateur draft, the trade deadline will pick up steam. Uh, So, yes, they need help in the bullpen. It's not too late. Right now
2: the three wild card spots are all being held by AL East teams, the Jays, Rays, and Red Sox. Not sure how long that's going to hold up as they start to play each other more often uh, down the stretch. And then it's just a matter of who do you believe in that's ahead of them right now? Cleveland, Texas, two of the teams that are actually ahead of them in the wild card race. How much do you believe in them? Then the White Sox are another uh, X factor there is, are they going to get healthy enough to make a run, both for a wild card spot or maybe even uh, atop the Central with the Twins? So it's not too late, but
1: you got to stop the bleeding. One last point on that, and I'll jump back in on the Angels' bullpen. You know, there's one one stat I look at. It it tells a story, but not the whole story, but inherited runners. You know, when you come into a game, you're a reliever. That's a tough part for a manager. Do you you try to start relievers with a fresh inning, or sometimes you have to bring them in with men on base? The the Angels' bullpen has inherited 115 runners. 47 of them have scored. That's a 41% rate. By far and away, the highest rate, 41%, the next closest – Is the Royals with a 31% rate in terms of inherited runners, the runners you come in with men on base and the ones you allow to score. The Angels have really faltered in that area. Now, that's, you know, you got to dig a little deeper. They can be misleading at times, but their overall save percentage too is second worst, 54%, only second lowest uh, to Boston. The Red Sox have really struggled in the save percentage category at 46%. Just to put that into context, the Houston Astros have converted 80% of their save opportunities. Boston, 46%. The Angels, 54%. It's kind of low. Inherited runners, save percentage, conversion, been a problem.
0: All that being said, for me, it comes down to the track records of a guy like Iglesias or Luke. That's been there. They've been off to start this season. But I have more confidence in those two getting things right and really helping the angels rectify most of their late game pitching issues. And I have confidence over, uh, I have confidence with them doing that over the confidence I may have in a team like Cleveland or Texas or the white Sox at this point in the standing. So I'm still keeping the faith here. I mean, lost 16 of 18. It's tough to, predict or forecast that some of those names, like we mentioned, the Iglesias the loops not being themselves not replicating their past success. That's exactly what's happened. They have not replicated their past success. So if they can figure it out and they have the pedigree to fix this, they're all you know professional. They've tasted wide ranges of success. There's no reason for them to have completely lost it. I think the angels can get back on the ball here and make a threat, at least in the wild card race, uh, if not the AL West cuz the Astros have slowed down just a bit here as we approach mid-June. Guys, a quick reminder that you can slide into stacks of cash this baseball season with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Major League Baseball. New customers can bet just $5 on any team to win and get $150 in free bets no matter what, win or lose. If you're looking to turn a small bet into a big payday during the MLB season, With DraftKings same-game parlays, you can do just that. You create your own parlay by combining multiple bets. For example, which team's going to win? How many bases are going to be stolen? Total runs. Anything you could think of. It is your shot at an even bigger payout. DraftKings is safe. It's secure. It's reliable. And best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code SLAB. Bet just five bucks. And get $150 in free bets no matter what happens on the field. That's promo code SLAB at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official betting partner of Major League Baseball. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. MLB trademarks used with permission. Another team that could be heavily in the wild card mix, or dare I say, in the division race in the AL East. That's the Toronto Blue Jays guys. They've won 14 of 18. They've held teams to three runs or fewer in 12 of those games. The hitting's heated up as well. The hitting has become what everybody thought it would be going into the season. Is there still time for Toronto to win the AL East here?
1: Well, I would never rule them out because of the the dy- dynamic offense that they have. And, and you're right, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has kind of underachieved even though he's, you know, when he underachieves, he's only 20% above league average as opposed to 40 or 50% above league average. So yeah, he's going to get better. He's going to, you know, as they say, a a positive regression for Vladimir Guerrero jr. Who I still consider a generational talent. Uh, Bo Bichette is really a good player. Um, Very dangerous, very dynamic athletically. Uh, Yes. Alec Manoa leading that rotation is as good as they get. Having a a banner year at the top of the rotation, Kevin Gosman, even though he's, Falling off a bit as of late, but still really good. So yeah, they have the one, two punch in their rotation. Uh, That offense is going to keep, keep on keeping on. So as far as winning the AL East, it depends, you know, the Yankees, if they keep running away with it, it doesn't matter what Toronto does, but they're still formidable. And they're going to be in the playoffs and they're not a team you want to face in the playoffs. So maybe the division championship thing isn't as important as it once was, but you know, you get, you get the buy round, obviously the first time in the first round, but Toronto's as good as anybody in terms of the fear factor of teams you do not want to face in a short series with Alec Manoa pitching game one and Kevin Gosman pitching game two and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Getting hot and Bo Bichette and on and on and on. Yeah, that that's not a team I want to face in a short series. If they can sweep the Yankees this
2: weekend in Toronto, maybe that can change the the dynamic a bit, but even beyond that, it might be silly to look at it this way with a hundred games left, but, They have the softest strength of schedule out of the AL East teams the rest of the season. They didn't play the Orioles at all until Monday. So they had, starting this week, 19 games against the Orioles to to maybe fatten up on compared to some of the other teams in the division, which can pad their wild card lead. They'd have to actually do more damage against the Yankees head-to-head to to try and claw
1: into that division lead, though. Nice. James Smythe from the top rope. I like it. That's right
0: big elbow uh yeah the the Toronto after this series that they're currently in with the Orioles they face them 15 more times the Yankees have already faced Baltimore 13 times this year and then after this weekend series between Toronto and New York I, I think they only have two more series against one another one in August and one back in Toronto in late September so the head-to-head matchups, they're going to be at a premium. Only nine games left between those two teams. But the way the Blue Jays have been playing here, the offense finally clicking on all cylinders, Laddie Jr., Teoscar Hernandez has heated up. And then again, Alec Manoa has been one of the most exciting pitchers in baseball. Forget the you know, the tag of young pitcher. He has been one of the most exciting pitchers, period, in Toronto. Uh, all right, a couple of other quick news and notes that want to get your opinion on David Walker Bueller, the Dodgers hurler. He is not going to be picking up a baseball now for six to eight weeks, suffered a flexor strain in his right elbow. I mean, he's gonna to have to restart completely. Maybe if he could get back on the mound in August, they would be very fortunate in Los Angeles. My question is, can the Dodgers hold off the Padres with Julio Arias and Tony Gonsolin and Tyler Anderson, as their three Bulldogs, do they need to make additions outside of the organization aside from those three?
1: Possibly. Yes. They have a deep arm system. They always seem to have another arm and waiting down in in AAA somewhere. So yes, but that's going to be tested. All of a sudden the Dodgers look vulnerable. And when you match it up, wait, the starting rotation for the Padres now looks better than the Dodgers overall. And Fernando Tatis Jr. is coming back. Can the Padres generate enough offense with the now vulnerable Dodgers? So, yeah, it's it's a it's a something to watch with with, re, with respect to Walker Bueller. We kind of saw this coming just a bit. His fat his foreseen fastball and the release point had kind of dropped this year, and it was less effective. And, and he'd kind of uh, thrown a lot more cutters uh, this year. He'd really kind of fallen in love with his cutter. And anytime you see for a first time a pitcher kind of morph his release points from his high over the top four seamer into kind of an around the ball cutter release point and that bleeds into your four seamer in terms of release point uh, it it can be a little bit of a red flag and we saw that earlier this year and now all of a sudden you come up with an elbow injury it's tricky you know and and this goes back to something Hal McCray taught me back with the Royals in the eighties, that anytime you had a good fastball riding fastball pitcher, and he started to manipulate the ball, either cutting it or sinking it, that he tends to kind of lose his riding for seam fastball. That's kind of what we saw with Walker Bueller this year. And now that's morphed into an elbow injury. So it is a huge red flag. Can he come back and be as effective? It remains to be seen, but they're going to be very careful with him and rightly so because he's such a such a big commodity for the Dodgers. One of the best young right-handed pitchers uh, that we've seen in a long time, really. If you look at his numbers overall, he you he's know, second to none. I mean, you talk about the start of a career to where he is and at 100 wins and the base he has for his career is really impressive. But there is a red flag there. His four-seam fastball was down this year, the cutter usage was up, and now you have an elbow injury. That four-seamer
2: had been getting – tattooed this year 368 opponent batting average against it with a 618 slugging percentage ugly situation
1: yeah and really the metrics behind it as i said when you look at you know every pitch can be measured now it's not the old school where i tell you what you see with your eyes it's sort of a here's the data your release points down uh your spin rates down the riding action the vertical movement on your four seamer is down Uh, hence that's why he kind of fell in love with his cutter Started throwing cutter after cutter, a lot more cutters this year. So, yeah, I mean, the, the metrics bear it out, exactly what James is saying. And to me, that's a bit of a red flag for Walker Buma.
0: We have a month and a half until the trade deadline. Do the Dodgers rest on the fact that they have a guy like Dustin May returning from Tommy John surgery to try and stabilize that pitching staff? Or are they going to be the aggressive shoppers we've come to know in recent years with names like Frankie Montas, Luis Castillo? What do you think?
1: They're always in it. The Dodgers are in on everything, whether it's the trade front, they have a a deep farm system as well. I, you know, I I think they can probably cover on that end. I still kind of wonder on them. I worry more about their offense. Who is Cody Bellinger? Is he going to, is he going to be anywhere close to the MVP player he was? Does Max Muncie get it going again? I mean, their lineup, even though they have a lot of diversity and people don't talk about it a lot, I think there's some really key players that have underachieved in their, off, in their lineup too as well. Can they get it going and cover up some of these injuries in their starting rotation? It's, it's ham and eggs, right? If you score a few more runs, you take the pressure off the pitching and vice versa. If you're pitching, it doesn't allow the, first, the, the opposing team to score first and give you a chance to, to stay in the game and take some pressure off your offense. I mean, it really is, a, you know, uh, the ham and eggs, yin and yang, whatever metaphor you want to use, uh, they go, they really do work together. I think the Dodgers can probably cover up the pitching side of it, as you said, Shaq, with maybe maybe it's Dustin May or somebody else. Uh, They've they got some good young prospects as well. So I kind of worry about their lineup, though, really. I wonder who, who they are. Who is Max Muncy at this point in his career? Who is Cody Bellinger? What is he going to be? Still young, very talented. Uh, kind of a hitter is he going to – is this going to shake down and be for them? So yeah, the, the Dodgers are vulnerable right now, no doubt about it.
0: Did you have ham and eggs for breakfast?
1: today did not i wish i did yeah, yeah. I, i'm still looking for breakfast i'm still on west coast time
0: <laughs> so with the calendar you mentioned a month and a half to the trade deadline we're about a month out from the all-star game uh give or take a few days here and that's going to be in dodger stadium and there have been a, a handful of pieces written about potential all-star candidates and we know that every team needs representation right at least one player Needs to be there from each ball club. So that creates some natural snubs. And as of this recording on June 14th, how many Yankee pitchers would David Cohn take with him if he was managing in the all-star game?
1: Wow. It, that, that's very tricky. I think part of it is, do you reward guys regardless of their schedules? There, there's a little bit more that goes into it now in terms of, okay, can he actually pitch in the game? First of all, you want to take pitchers that can actually pitch in the game, but you also want to balance that with rewarding pitchers who deserve it. Uh, there's still a, a few more starts before they have to make that decision, but certainly Nestor Cortez is at the top of the list. I think, uh, you know, ironically, uh, Luis Severino to me is a guy that you look at. I mean, it's kind of a, between him and Jamison Tyone. Wow. I mean, they're both really good, but uh, I think recent history, that uh, coming on and you look at his numbers and peel back some layers. He's really good. And I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of different ways to, to slice and dice it, but Severino would be a guy I'd look at if, if I have to pick, you know, obviously Nestor Cortez, Severino, you can make a case for Jamison Tyone as well. Um, certainly Michael King in the bullpen, maybe a, a little bit of a dark horse. Do those setup guys get rewarded? Representation's always an issue. You know, Buck Walter talked recently about, we should have a spot on the all-star team for a utility guy because it's such an important part of the game nowadays with the benches being short, all the extra guys are in the bullpen, extra relievers, a guy that can play multiple positions on your bench. Maybe doesn't show up in the, in the quantitative stats, but from a quality standpoint and a diversity standpoint and a versatility standpoint, that's really an important part of the game today. So, yes, and that you go right hand in hand, the utility guy and the setup guy in, in bullpens is a big part of the game, too, as well. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, those are two underrepresented spots there. So Michael King and uh, somebody that's a super utility guy that's had, a, had a, uh, a, a really good half season so far should be considered as well. Well, I
2: think Nestor Cortez and Clay Holmes are locks. Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond that, it's hard because when you're trying to whittle it down and, and put together an American League staff, it gets crowded early. And be, after Cortez, as great as Jordan Montgomery, Luis Severino, and Jameson Tyone have been, they're all in that 10 to 15 range in ERA, especially with the lower run environment. You look at the AL ERA leaderboard and you say, wow, these guys are all under three. There's 14 guys under three right now. So you got to reward a lot of pitchers. And even though Holmes has stepped up and been a great closer for the Yankees, King, as great as he's been, historically it's hard for guys without saves in, in the bullpen to, to really get that kind of recognition. I think it's picked up a little bit in recent years. Maybe there's room for one, uh, setup guy or long, you know, long relief, middle relief guy uh, to get, to get a nod there, but it'll fill up quickly.
0: I remember one year when Joe Torrey was managing the all-star game, he was able to get Jeff Nelson to the all-star game for the work that he did in, in middle relief. So that always stands out to me when you talk about these roles that should be created for an all-star roster for sure. But when you look at the rotation, the entire rotation is among the top 22 in baseball, in whip. So that's another stat that just shows how dominant this team has been, this pitch, the the starting rotation. But for me, yeah, if if you had to, you know, pull back the the velvet rope, right? Allow two guys into the party. For me, it's Cortez and Holmes at this moment. But the party fills up up fast, man. Man, they've been really good. Um, All right. This week in pitching history, James, what do you have for
2: us? All right. June 15th, 1938, 84 years ago Wednesday, Johnny Vandermeer of the Cincinnati Reds pitches his second straight no hitter, 23 year old lefty having a good season. He pitches a no hitter on June 11th at home against the Boston Bees. We know them as the Braves. Then on June 15th, it was already a big night in Brooklyn baseball history. The first night game at Ebbets field, they had over 38,000 fans, which was, more than four times their usual attendance. They had pregame fireworks, appearances by Babe Ruth and Jesse Owens, parade around the warning track before the game. Vandermeer was from Midland Park, New Jersey, so his family and his girlfriend and a few hundred people come busing in from town to come to the game. In the game, he has eight walks and seven strikeouts, so it was was an effectively wild sort of night. Uh, By the seventh or eighth inning, the crowd had really turned and was rooting for him to get the no-hitter against the home team. Leo DeRocher comes up for the Dodgers with two outs in the ninth as the last batter. One-two pitch, looked like a strike. Crowd goes nuts. Umpire Bill Stewart calls it a ball. His catcher, Ernie Lombardi, the Hall of Famer for the Reds, was furious. Vandermeer said he threw the ball back to him so hard that he thought he broke his hand catching the ball back from the the catcher there. The next pitch, though, Vandermeer buckles down, gets DeRocher to fly out to center, and he gets the second straight no-hitter. An unbreakable record to me. And the umpire, Stewart, he went up to him after the game and apologized, saying that he knew he missed the call. Vandermeer started the All-Star game that season, made four All-Star teams, won the 1940 World Series with the Reds. He led the NL in strikeouts three times. He had a good 13-year career and also managed in the minors. Obviously, he's known for this legendary feat with the back-to-back no-hitters. This is a little wrinkle that I love. He died in 1997 at the age of 82, and he made sure that he was buried with a baseball in
1: his left hand. (laughs) Love it. Love it. What a name. Johnny Vandermeer.
0: Forever the greatest week in pitching history for an individual. Probably won't be tough.
2: An easy pick for this week.
0: Yeah, I was about to say, this is such a slam dunk whenever this, this week rolls around. What was like your second choice here? (laughs)
2: <laughs> i didn't even didn't even look i was i said june 15th it's gonna be when the show comes out nice and easy with vandermeer this week for sure you, you imagine
0: the excitement that people probably had first going to like the first night game at a ballpark i mean the big deal oh my gosh i remember uh, i don't know if you were watching the gilded age the show on hbo but there was like an episode where they go to the I guess the first building that was lit up and it was like a nightly spectacle they all went out there and yeah. it lit up like they were on the Vegas Strip and it was just like such a seminal moment but going to like the first yeah. sporting event with lights under the lights at night that had to been pretty I wild
1: play, I played in the first one at Wrigley Field back in night in the late 80s I think it was back the, in the
0: day right
1: yes I mean Man, it was really the, the the first night game at Wrigley Field was that recent I mean I was still playing it was mm-hmm. I can't remember exact date. I think it was 89, 1989. It was certainly late 80s when I was with the Mets, and we were there, and we we weren't scheduled. I think the game before was supposed to be the first night game of Wrigley got rained out or something happened, so we ended up – it deferred to, defaulted to us, and uh, it was us. It was uh, it was the Mets, and I remember Lenny Dexter got a beer dumped on him in center field. There was a play by the Ivy. and got, got a full beer dumped on his head, and he loved it. He just – like only Lenny Dexter can do. He screamed at the crowd, yeah, more, more, throw another one. And, so it I, was I, I, August 9th, 1988. It was 19, supposed to be 8, 8 88, but right. it got rained out, so push back another day. That's what happened. So, yeah, there you go. 1988, first night game at Wrigley Field. All right, gentlemen, three up, three down
0: here as we wind things down on Tone the Slab this week. David, who do you have for us? Let's lead it off with you.
1: Well, you know, I gave some love to the San Diego Padres, the overall rotation, you know, Joe Musgrove, Sean Minaya, you Darvish, just as nasty as can be. But how about McKin- McKenzie Gore and the start he's had to his career? And this is from the Padres' uh, social media account on Twitter. He is the first pitcher since 1913, since the when ERA became an official stat in both leagues to have 55-plus Ks, an ERA of 1.5 or lower in his first nine career appearances. You think about that. I mean, strikeouts, low ERA, his first nine starts since 1913. That's a hell of a start to your career. Uh, he's for real. You know, I talked to A.J. Preller earlier this year when I was out there, the general manager with the Padres, and he said, what do you think of McKenzie Gorn?" I said, I haven't seen enough of him, but what I've seen is pretty good. The left-hander. He's got some stuff. He's got uh, probably three plus pitches in his repertoire. Uh, so he knows what he's doing. He's come up. Some of these young pitchers are so much more polished when they come to the big leagues. They're ready to go because of the technology, because of the coaching, um, the, the high speed cameras, the pitch design. They're much more evolved nowadays. Uh, it used to be back in the 70s and 80s, guys would come up and learn on the fly. I need to learn a third pitch, I need to learn a change up. He's got a good curveball and a good fastball. Now they come up, they're already there. They're already fully polished. McKinsey Gore is an example of that. The kid's for real. He's legit. And with that Padres rotation, he's the number four guy. (laughs) With that start to his career and a tough lefty at that, watch out for the Padres. Their rotation, really good right now.
0: And he learned through adversity in the minors as well. So you have some pitchers come up here and – get knocked around and learned that way he went through some long struggles in the upper portions of the minor leagues that probably set him on a better path and potentially avoid those struggles i know it's AAA and the big leagues huge difference there but when you when you go through specific types of adversity it just you know sets you up hey the rookie of the year front runner in the national league hands down uh, mackenzie gore um james what do you have or who do you have i should say
2: Dipping my cap to the Red Sox. They got off to a bad start, but they've picked it up. Starting 9-2 in June with an MLB-leading 2.10 ERA through those first 11 games in June. Nathan Avaldi going on the aisle with lower back inflammation as a hit, but he did have two scoreless starts to begin the month. Michael Waka, a 1-4-2 ERA in his last three starts. Rich Hill has done better uh, over the last couple of turns. Nick Pavetta with a sub-2 ERA over his last seven starts we knew the hitting would eventually come around can they pitch was always the question they've stepped up and gotten
1: them back into the race and into a playoff position chris sale on the way back too so he would be a huge lift for them if he's anywhere near you know uh, what he normally is
0: potentially in a relief role too i think they're going to take any version of chris sale that's what i that's what i saw the other night i mean any version of chris sale if he's able to deliver in shortening spurts or actually make the lengthy starts that we've come to know. Yeah. It's just an added boost there for the Red Sox.
1: They're right there. I agree. You know, Chris sales got three pitches, you know, people think, well, he's, about, you know, he won't be as good when his velocity diminishes, when he starts to, you know, the skills start to diminish, but he's got a great change up to go with that wicked slider. just his style, you know, the, his funky style, his release point, the crossfire, the lower three quarters delivery, the deceptions built in, but his changeup is legit. He's a legitimate three-pitch pitcher, which to me really bodes well. When I look at pitchers and when they, their skills start to diminish, it's sort of the weapons. Do they have enough? Chris Sale does. His changeup is, is for real. He's got three-plus pitches. Even if he does lose a little velocity or a little bit of whatever, uh, he, he's got enough in his repertoire and his built-in deception to be effective.
0: For me, we talked about the White Sox earlier, and I want to give a shout out to Lance Lynn, the Cowboy, coming back, making his season debut back on Monday. It wasn't anything sparkling. Gave up 10 hits, uh, three runs scored, only lasted four and a third, but he was sidelined with that knee surgery. This is a guy that's finished in the top six in Cy Young voting the last three years. I was a top, was a finalist last year as well. And I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the dugout episode he had a little snafu with third base coach Joe McEwing you saw them shouting at one another and David right away you said hey that's just a matter of the shifts not being aligned to the preference of Lance Lynn because he got burned by the shift so Lynn and McEwing going at it a little bit in in the dugout the competitive spirit of Lynn coming out but I think it was awesome the way he handled it in the post-game interviews because he was asked about it, and I have the quote right here with his dispute with McEwing, and Lynn said, he was trying to get me going. He kept telling me that filet is better than ribeye. I'm more of a ribeye and potatoes guy. He's a filet and, like, Caesar salad guy. So I just told him he was wrong, and then he went back to coaching third. So we have cuts of beef for code's when it relates to the shift well done Lance Lynn
1: yeah that, that's better than was it a rat or a raccoon right from <laughs> Lindor and, and his story last year so with the Mets when he had a blow up uh, so uh, yeah, yeah I mean that this, go, this is right to the heart of the matter Shaq of pitchers starting pitchers on their day pitching can be flaky they can be volatile catchers need to understand that coaches need to understand that and it's a classic case of He didn't like the shift. There there was a Joe McEwing's a defensive coach. He aligns the shift and he took exception. It's like, Hey, that's my job. This works out more times than it doesn't. Uh, And in the heat of the battle, obviously ball went where a defender uh, normally probably could have been years ago and wasn't there. Classic shift debate, classic, you know, snappage on, on, on defense on shifts and, you know, it, you have to understand that, you know, pitchers, you got to give them a little slack on the leash. Starting pitchers are flaky on the days they pitch. You got to give them a little slack on the leash. So, you know, you just chalk that one up to heat of the battle.
0: Lance Lynn is back. And I think White Sox fans are saying, Hey, welcome back, buddy. Glad to have you now. Uh, let's go. We need to make up some serious ground in the AL central. So we'll be keeping an eye on Lance Lynn and the White Sox here. That will do it for this episode here of telling the slab. Big thanks. To the dynamite, Dan Rourke, who gets these episodes turned around quickly. Nice work, Dan. And a reminder that new episodes will drop each and every Tuesday or on Wednesday. We'll let you know which days it'll drop on social media here. Best way you can support the show, rate, review, subscribe. And we love your support here. Tone of the Slab Pitching with David Cone, is a production of John Boy Media. We will talk to you next week, everybody. Take care.